back to the Clayton Castle podcast. We have a great episode lined up for you today. I will be talking to Cincinnati Public Schools board member Mike Morosky coming up. We'll be talking about his time on the school board and some of the critical issues facing our children today. So you will not want to miss that. Now, before I get into that conversation, I do want to address an important anniversary in our nation's history. Obviously, this weekend is the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. It is a day that we should never forget, and I don't think we ever will forget. This is my generation's JFK moment. This is a moment where we knew exactly where we were when we found out. Now, here's my September 11th story. I actually did not find out about what happened until that afternoon. I was in third grade at Sands Montessori School. That was down in the West End before they had moved to Mount Washington. I remember the teachers being upset. The teachers were crying. The teachers were visibly shaken by what had happened. I don't know how they found out, but somehow they did. But they did not tell the kids because we they did not want us to be anxious or to be worried that basically that we were next. And so I kind of, looking back on it, thank them for that because knowing me, I probably would have been freaking out. My teacher told me later in the day that my dad would be picking me up from school. Now, for context, my dad never picked my brother and I up from school unless someone was dying, something big had happened, or we had to go somewhere due to an emergency. So I knew then that something was up, something had happened. My dad picked us up from school. He sat us down in the car and basically kind of explained to us in kids version what had happened, that there was a an attack in New York, in Washington, D.C. and in Pennsylvania. But again, I was in third grade. I really did not understand the magnitude of what had happened. Now, what I do remember is I remember going home and my mom was in her bedroom and they had a TV in their bedroom and she was still watching coverage of what had happened. The national news had been on all day, ABC, NBC, CBS. They had wall-to-wall coverage of the attacks. And so I remember getting home and watching video replay of the towers falling, the planes hitting the towers, and then the still images and the live shots of the billowing smoke in Manhattan. And that's kind of when I realized the magnitude of that day. And that was my generation's JFK moment, the moment where we knew exactly where we were when we found out. And that is my September 11th story. I think about that day a lot, especially recently with everything that has gone down in Afghanistan. My best friend from childhood, Johnny, He actually fought in Afghanistan for, I think, a little over a year or two years. And so I think of all those men and women who sacrificed their lives for our country's freedom and fighting terrorism because of what had happened that day. And so I would really recommend that you take time today, tomorrow, to really think about our nation and where we can go from here. I think that the biggest way... We can remember those who lost their lives on September 11th. And by the way, people are still losing their lives from September 11th. People are dying from cancer caused by the smoke in the Twin Towers. Firefighters are dying. Regular people are dying. And so I want you to remember those people and everything that the country went through in the aftermath of that. Remember, we have never been more unified in this country 
than the time after September 11th. And in a time where we are so politically divided now and so divided in many other ways, maybe we can come around and come together on September 11th and move forward in a unifying way. There's no point in division. What good does division do? We can have our differences of opinion, but we cannot be divided in hate. We cannot be divided against our adversaries across the globe. We have to unite and we have to remember all of those who lost their lives on September 11th. So that's all I want to say about that. Um, Thank you for taking the time to listen to that. So with that being said, coming up next, we will be talking to Cincinnati Public Schools board member, Mike Morosky. Stay tuned. Welcome to this episode of the Clayton Castle Podcast. I know I say this all the time, but this time I'm really jazzed for this next guest. He is one of the most outspoken, if not the most outspoken member of the Cincinnati Public Schools Board of Education. I am talking this week to Mr. Mike Morosky. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, Clayton, thanks so much for having me on the program. Uh, Super excited to be here, man. Thanks. And, I, you know, I told you right before we started that I'm a lifelong Cincinnati product, Cincinnati Public Schools product. Yeah. I went to Sands Montessori and then um, the School for Creative Performing Arts before finally transferring to Walnut Hills. So um, I have a lot to talk to you about on this episode. Yeah. Um, first of all, I just wanted to start with you was going through your campaign website. Obviously, you are running for reelection this year um, yep. to the Board of Education. And I was looking through your about Mike Morosky page and I was like, I just want to learn something new about him other than he was on the school board. And hmm. holy God, you have a long resume of just really impressive work. In addition to being on the board of education now, you are the policy and partnership director at Cradle Cincinnati. You're a trustee at Camp Joy. You've okay. been you previously have been the executive director at Upspring, which for those who don't know, it's an organization that helps with the educational needs of kids who are homeless. Uh, you've been a teacher at Moeller. You're an assistant principal at Purcell Marion. And just a long list of things. You have your MA from Xavier. You have your MNA from Notre Dame. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, and that's, just, and that's just some of it. So let's get into it. Um, first of all, you know, you, obviously you've done a lot of things in the education world. What made you want to go into education? Uh, I think it, it had a lot to do with, you know, without using too broad a brush or assuming too much, uh, you know, I feel like it says about a lot of my teacher friends um, or, or education friends uh, in that it had a lot to do with my own experience. And mine wasn't like the best. For some people, it was awesome. And that's why, right, why they want to carry it on. For some people, I think it's like me where it wasn't, it didn't sit well. And they thought they could maybe do it better. At least that's how I felt. 
And uh, I, I always kind of joke that, you know, I was that kid that uh, <laughs> I appreciate your intro, by the way. It was too it was too glowing. And I, and I love it. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Uh, but you referenced uh, being outspoken. And I've always been this way uh, ever since I was like three years old. And I can see to my son, who's a year and a half, and he's already going, so I'm going to get paid back. I'll be paid back for this. But uh, yeah, I joke and say, you know, I could only get asked by a, a teacher so many times when I was a smart ass teenager. Do you want to teach the class, Moroski? Before I was like, you know what? I do. <laughs> so uh, I um, I went to a pretty conservative, uh, I would say almost fascist high school <laughs> Oh, wow. In Atlanta, where I grew up, um, and the teachers were fine. I'm not saying, you know, but when I say like fascist, just it was conservative, coat and tie. I wanted to go to the public school by my house so bad. My parents um, were from Cleveland, and uh, they trusted the public schools up there. My brother was in them, and then uh, and they moved to Atlanta. They didn't know much about the landscape, and they thought this was going to be a good place. And now, years and years later, they're in their 80s now. They're like, man, we probably should have let you go to another school. I was like, well, it's part of the reason I was such a pain in the ass, I think. But I always, I always had a, a different idea of what school could be and what education could be and how the, most specifically how the teacher-student relationship could be. And just to kind of put a fine point on that, what I'm sort of getting at is you know, I have this belief that has only been solidified with time uh, that, you know, teenagers, especially and the younger kids, too. But, I, you know, I worked with high school students. I was an assistant principal with high school students. Um, there's something special about teenagers to me. And one of the things that's most special is that their bullshit radar is so finely tuned. Mm-hmm. And then and then life sort of chips away at that. And, you know, I, I, I have uh, endless grace for everyone until they're 25. And then I stop. Um, you know, I don't care. the You can say the wackiest shit in the world to me. Hey, you're 18, 13, 4. That's fine. I love it. And yeah, it could be totally off base once you get to a certain age. And of course, 25 brain science wise does sync up. Executive function is kicking in. Um you know, then you start making your own choices, I think. And yeah, yeah it's uh, the onus is on you. Uh, right. And I will come at you uh, with your hateful shit uh, at age uh, 30. Watch out. Anyway, um, <laughs> but kids, they don't, they don't know. And, and, and like, and there's something about their ability to, you know, see that bullshit that and, and, and kids come at us as elected people. They protest. And we always say we listen to kids. But I don't think that we do. Because if you really listen to kids, then they don't have to come protest for a year and a half about the same issues. And I'm thinking right now about school resource officers. And we can come back to that later. But I know I'm meshing all this together. It's how my brain works. I can see right. the forest, <laughs> not the trees. Uh, so I, want, I thought school could be different. I'll pause. And I thought it could be different. And I wanted to try to make it different. So you kind of touched on your um, private school Catholic upbringing. And then all of a sudden you want to run for, or you not only ran for, but you won a, a spot on the Cincinnati Public Schools Board of Education. Talk a little bit about the differences that you've seen between the private school education and the public school education. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you know, I think my sort of Catholic brainwashing um, uh, combined with like my community life and my socio-political life is, you know, I, I've always valued elected office. And uh, my granddaddy was a union railroad man in Northern Ohio, always ran for city council as a Democrat, never won. I broke the losing streak. Very proud of that. I'd like <laughs> to think Bernard Morosky's energy that's in the cosmos is floating around all, you know, cool with that. But um, 
uh, when I was thinking about how I could best serve the public school board made the most sense to me um, for a whole host of reasons. And uh, I have earned this position. It's been great. I worked a lot of public schools throughout my life. You referenced my work with Upspring um, for three years. I worked really closely with all the public school districts in the region. There are about 8,000 kids experiencing homelessness in our region. And I worked, tried to work with all of them. Anyway, it's a long intro. I apologize. But the, the, biggest, di- the biggest difference is, and I don't say this, I, I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't mean this to sound judgmental. Um, I really don't. And if I did, I would say that. And I, I don't have a problem uh, judging uh, every now and then. But I don't mean this as judgmental. But one of the biggest differences that is so loud is that the quality of teaching is so much higher in public schools. And there's this weird false belief that Catholic schools are better than public schools. And I'm not afraid to say that. People get uncomfortable when we talk this bluntly, especially in Cincinnati, which has a bevy of Catholic schools. Like this shit was foreign to me. I was from Atlanta. There were two Catholic high schools in Atlanta, which is much larger here. There was, a, there was the Archdiocesan one and the private one. I went to the private one. And um, here, I moved up here. And then I find out there's single sex. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, boys and girls aren't learning together. I don't get it. And then I taught at one. I taught at Muller for 10 years. And, um, and it was great. Um, but I, you know, it's easy. It's easy to teach at a school that's, uh, you have all the same kid, monochromatic white boys from wealth. And the kids who aren't white are all in the, the, the remedial classes and play sports. People don't like to hear that, but that's what it is in this city. And those schools are maintaining segregation. Uh, and I used to say that when I was there, it was unpopular. Ultimately, of course, I got fired by that system. We can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. I overstayed my welcome. Um, but um, I do think the quality of teaching is higher. And, you know, part of it is just uh, is, is factual in nature because you don't even have to have a teacher license or accreditation to work in the Catholic schools. You know, to work in a public school, you have to have a, a lot of schooling, accreditation, et cetera. Um, and it's a harder process. And so... You know, you went to Walnut, you you look at a school like Walnut, unlike the monochromatic classroom I had of kids from Montgomery and Indian Hill and a few from Deer Park here and there. um, You got kids from all over the place. Mm -hmm. And as for a teacher, you're you're dealing with maybe you got 17 kids. You got 17 different backgrounds and 17, just 17 different experiences on the way to school that morning. Because what happens to a teenager on the way to school in the morning dictates that day. Right. Uh, same with adults, but we don't like to, you know, talk about that too much anyway. But like, that's hard. If you're a teacher and you're getting all those kids and you need them all on the same page to receive a good, that's hard. And so I think that's a really big difference. I think the second big difference is that you're allowed to think in public schools. Mm-hmm. And I think the two are very, very much related because yeah. teaching a young person to think requires an excellent teacher, teaching a young person to memorize whether it's a catechism or teaching a teenager to believe hard stop. There's a God and there's a Jesus and there's a thing and there's a this and there's a that period. That's easy because then you just give them a grade and you fail them if they don't give it back to you. But teaching a kid to think is hard. And that's what public school teachers do. You know, you kind of touch on it. And that's something I've always said about my experience. Like you said, at Walnut Hills and I haven't, not even just Walnut Hills, but the School for Career and Performing Arts and at Sands, because I went to Sands back when it was in the West End. Mm, and, oh, right on. Yeah. And 
you know, that's something I've always said compared to not just private schools, but even suburban public schools. And that's what it's like to be in a district in an urban yeah. community in Cincinnati public, like you said, is one thing I learned, especially it kind of really came um, it came out like during the whole George Floyd protest, because I can kind of understand I can understand to an extent why they're protesting, because I my best friend in high school was an African-American, was um, was African-American, is still African-American, I should say. But, you know, you learn that diversity, you learn those different cultures that mm -hmm. come into these buildings. And that's something you might not see at, like you said, a private school where you're taught to, you know, I, I know you will stay on your um, Twitter profile that you're an atheist. I happen to be a Christian, but that's stuff I want to learn at church, not at school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the biggest difference to me is learning that diversity and learning open thoughts and cultures as yeah. opposed to being told what to believe. No, you're a hundred percent correct. And I'm just going to add one quick little thing to that. Um, that is significant because that experience you just described, is is the experience that will turn this country around and unless we all have that experience and the experience you just spoke to was an organic one you went to school with black kids kids who look different than you girls boys um you hopefully ideally were in an environment where it was you know accepted to be to be gay different genders different lifestyles etc you know now in our schools we have you know all gender restrooms so our kids are growing up in this world where this is all normalized for them whereas in that other system um and i and i and i and i took part in this you know i'll always i'll always put myself out on front street before i start you know criticizing anything you know i helped run the service learning programs at Mueller for a decade and i founded one you know we rehabbed a number of buildings and over the rhine for affordable housing i think that was good work um i sat on the drop-in center board throughout the time i opened a nonprofit coffee shop on 15th and elm this is well before over the rhine was gentrified like it is now and I, you know, I think those things were good, but if I'm honest with myself, the 10 years that I took those white privileged kids to over the Rhine to do that work reinforced what they were taught at school at Mueller, that they were better than, that they were saviors and that the white people would save the poor black people. And that's what happens when we try to teach these kids diversity and that secular, that sort of secluded exclusionary system. And we spend $10,000 to fly them to Central America to do trips to only come right back to their mansion, we reinforce this idea that they are elevated above these poor colored, you know, black, uh, Hispanic, whatever it is, folks. And that's dangerous, you know, and I, I, I took part in that. Um, you know, some people tell me I, I talk like this and they, they say, oh, no, Mike, you did a lot of good. I'm like, I think there was some good, but I have to be honest with myself. I mean, those students that are now in their 30s, I see what they put on Facebook. They didn't learn shit. Yeah. They think they're better than all these black people, Hispanic people, women. They're misogynists because that was the louder message. Because I could take them for three hours a week to over the Rhine and hang out with folks. And I think they developed good relationships with people that look different than them. Sure. But then they got five days and then football practice and basketball practice where they're told they're better than everybody. That's all right. That's OK. You're going to work for us someday. And all that dumb shit they say at their sporting events. Mm -hmm. So anyway, what you just said, sorry, I, that triggered that in me because that's what's so important. And my son, we live downtown and our neighborhood school is Hayes Porter. My wife and I find it extremely important that people that can make choice that are white choose to send their white children 
to their neighborhood school. Because look, you want to live in the cool hip part of town, but you don't even want to set foot in Rothenburg or Hayes Porter. You're not woke. Don't put your all lives matters. Don't put your, your, your black lives matter sign and all this other stuff in your yard because you're teaching your kid nothing unless you're sending, you know, having uh, providing the opportunity to have those experiences. So I'll pause cause I get fired up, but it's important. And I'm glad you had that experience. I'm going to move on to your time at Purcell and the sure. way, the way that you made national headlines there, but I want to kind of add on to what you just said is, you know, I, I can, I know that I was, I don't, I, I don't want to say lucky, but I got to go to Sands and then SCPA, then Walnut. These None of those are neighborhood schools by any means. My neighborhood school would have been Mount Washington because I live in Mount Washington, which mm-hmm. is also a very good school. But I think, like you said, neighborhood schools is where the change happens. If we can elevate those neighborhood schools to a high-quality education, then you can have successful African-American students, successful you know, students who don't who are not white or straight or whatever – and that way we as as white people don't be like, oh, I'm better than you. When if we started the neighborhood schools, especially in those communities like Hayes Porter or uh, Rothenburg or Rothenburg, excuse me, then that's how we can elevate the entire district as a whole. Mm-hmm. Totally. So so anyway, so I want to move on um, to the way you made national headlines. I think this was in 2013, I believe, 2013, right. 2014. 2013. Um, no, you're right. And during your time at Purcell Marion, you were an assistant principal, I believe, or the dean of students. So- yeah, so both. I was I was the assistant principal, dean of students. So that yeah, I changed I changed the title to dean of student life. So okay, so um, basically, I'll just give a summary. I'll let you explain exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. But you were fired. Let's just say for something that you posted on Facebook or no, on a blog, I believe. Yep. That went against Catholic or diocese policy. Can you explain uh, what that was? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I had a website uh, called MikeMoroski.com, which I still have. Um, I've had it for a while. I, you know, I've always known I was going to, you know, have some kind of public elected life someday. So I started the website a long time ago and uh, before that, well before. And um, I, somebody told me I should blog about stuff. And I didn't know what the hell that, that meant. You know, I didn't have an email address till college. I'm a, I know I look like I'm 20, <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, anyway, um, I was like, I'm not blogging. No one gives a shit about what I have to say. And, I'm, and so they're like, no, you should start doing that now. These political people. I was like, all right, I'll do it. So uh, I, I did uh, my third blog post ever uh, made national news. So I guess I was an OK blogger. Anyway, I, uh, the long and short of it is I had put up a post. I was in San Francisco at a writing conference with my wife. Uh, so I was a board chair of wordplay in Northside at the time. So I was out in San Francisco repping Cincinnati at this thing. And uh, uh, Obama uh, uh, was inaugurated second time and he was talking about marriage equality and it really got me excited. So I put up a Facebook post about how cool I thought it was. I was at, uh, uh, of course, assistant principal to your point. And the religion teacher, one of the religion teachers at Moeller, who I worked across the hall from, uh, we used to have a hell of a back and forth, very diametrically opposed on most issues, but we were friends and, uh, and we had beers and stuff on Friday together. It's great. And we're both musicians. So we had fun, uh, but we didn't agree on anything. And, uh, he said something, fired something back about Catholic stuff. And, uh, we had the kind of respectful back and forth. And I was like, you know, was, I'm gonna write a blog about this. It was called choose your battles. And the blog, funnily enough, wasn't really about marriage equality as much as it was about, um, how people like me and this guy, 
you know, uh, how beautiful it was. We were able to have this disagreement. So beers together and how we needed more of that. And it was called choose your battles because I made reference in the post that, um, you know, I, I said it was kind of a catty remark. I'll admit, uh, sorry, but I made a comment like, man, I really wish I had time to give two shits about what people did in their bedroom, but I'm too busy trying to like make change to worry about how people have sex, um, or something. And in the post though, I made a, a comment that was not the, the crux of the post that says, I, you know, at the end of the day though, I do believe gay people should be allowed to get married. Uh, and then I went on to say ethically, morally, and legally, I believe this. And that's what got me tossed. And so the superintendent of the archdiocese came in, told me I had a couple options. I could either resign or wait out the rest of the school year, recant my statements, and then maybe get rehired. And I said, I choose neither because I didn't do anything wrong. Because I'm familiar with the acceptable use policy of this district, uh, I helped write it. And I didn't do anything wrong. Now, when so, you say recant, I assume they wanted you to publicly recant as well. I guess. Yeah, I guess they wanted me to like take it down. But, you know, just, you know, this is what happens to uh, ideologues like these people, the mm -hmm. Archdiocese and Dennis Schnur. Uh, he calls himself uh, Archbishop. I call him Dennis. He, um, you know, they do this all the time. You know, they wanted to like be quiet about this. And then they're telling me to recant my statements publicly, which would have made it louder. Instead, they chose to fire me and make it super loud. Um, you know, they can't they, they can't uh, see in two feet in front of themselves. And so I said, I'm not doing it. And they're like, well, you got to go home. I go, go home for what? What did I do wrong? No, to this day. I don't have anything that tells me exactly why I was tossed. They said I used bad judgment anyway. So a week goes by. I talked, I got an attorney who's a buddy of mine and he kind of helped me out. After a week, I heard nothing. I went down to the archdiocese and met with their HR director, a guy named Bill Hancock. Uh, and thankfully he's no longer their HR director. Uh, and he tells me in this meeting, a number of interesting things. He tells me that my, my dad and my mom and my wife would be disappointed in me if I didn't uh, take down the post. Uh, he told me that he thanks God every night that he's not a diabetic, an alcoholic, or a gay. He said that to me. Um, this is the man in charge of HR for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. So anyway, he's not there anymore, thank goodness. Um, and uh, uh, that's the only person in the Archdiocese I talked to. So I went on the radio the Monday after, a week later, mon the Monday after the Monday the superintendent came to this ultimatum. And I went on WLW with my homie Scott Sloan. And uh, they fired me on air. Oh, I'm on air with my attorney. Cause I was like, I'm tired of being quiet about this, man. No, no, you know, I don't know what's going on. And, uh, you know, the students were protesting cause by this point, you know, people know what's going on right? and why I'm not at school. And the students are like, where's Mr. Morosky? And so they're protesting now in the archdiocese. I was so proud of them. Um, and they were so great. And it was real, you know, I gotta tell you, it was not an easy decision, you know, for me to make, I called my wife the second after I told the superintendent, I wasn't going to take his deal. And uh, she's like, you know, we had just gotten married like months before this. And she's like, you know, no matter what you do, I'm going to support you. I was like, I appreciate that. But it was hard for me, man. And, you know, and the reason I don't have any love for those people at the Archdiocese, I got a lot of love for the teachers, principals, all my friends. I don't have any love for Dennis Schnur. I don't have love for his team or his posse either. And the reason I don't is because the position they put me in of choosing the kids who I love more than anything and a job that I think really gave an opportunity to work with kids to do good things 
a lot of kids that people don't typically take the time to give a shit about. The fact they made me choose between that and their bullshit ideology of hatred does offend me. And what offends me more is that after I was fired, they redid their entire contract, renamed teacher, teacher ministers. That's my son in the window. He's, hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, he calmed me down. He could tell. He's like, Dad, you're getting all fired up. Bring it back. Um, so they renamed teachers, teacher ministers. They take a page and a half contract, make it six pages long. And in the contract that you have to sign to have a job, it says in black and white that you cannot support the homosexual lifestyle, whatever the hell that means. Uh, you cannot support in vitro fertilization. You cannot support surrogate motherhood. It's like, this is the pro-life people. I thought, right. what is this? And so, but what offends me about these people is that they're putting everybody who works in their system in that same position every single school year. And what's more is I promise you, I promise you every single person in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati is a liar and it's not their fault. And I love them all, but you can't ask somebody to sign something that says you won't even support, and it's a laundry list of people, the, the odds of anybody in the archdiocese not knowing somebody who's one of these things or being related to or something like, but they sign it. Why? Because they need a job. I get it. I was fortunate in, in, the, in the way that I could take that stand and get tossed. Most mm -hmm. people aren't. And, you know, being a white, straight male you know, I'm at the top of everything. There's nobody that outperforms my demographic in America. And I hate that, which is why I've dedicated my life to dismantling that from the inside out. Um, I can get fired from my job and have it be the best thing that happened to my career. That's fucked up. And that if that's not privilege, I don't know what is. And so I've chosen, you know, I had had this whole activist life in addition to the schools, why I've chosen to double down on that activist part. Right. That elected part and try to dismantle these systems that make getting fired a good thing for your career. Isn't that crazy? Because the reason I've been able to do so much good, I think, for people is because to your point, you're like, oh, who is this guy? And I had somebody accuse me once of being an opportunist. And I said, you're absolutely right. I said, I have worked my ass off to try to do good and change systems for the past 13 years. And now people are actually paying attention. And I'll be damned if I don't grasp that opportunity to try to make bigger change. So thank you, Dennis Schnur. But you know what? Shame on them for making their teachers sign that bullshit because those teachers in that system love those kids. And there are gay children in that system that are terrified to come out to their teachers because they don't want their teacher to get fired yeah. anyway. So, yeah, well, that's how it went down. Well, I think to your point, I think being an opportunist can sometimes be a good thing if you know that you are the right person to make change. Like uh, we didn't, when I was on, when I was in CPS, we didn't have an activist on the school board. We didn't have that one person that we could say, you know, Mike Morosky is fighting for us. So that's why I want to interview you. And because the way I describe my podcast is I just sit down and interview interesting and fascinating people. And we have, no, it's not. who was who that? <laughs> Go? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I find you interesting and fascinating because, like I said, I've not seen that on the CPS board and I've been around CPS basically my entire life. So kind of transitioning to your work on the board. Yeah, um, there are a couple we only have about, let's see, not that much longer left. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to blow through some of these. 
That's the my trans- fault. I apologize. I'll be quick. No, you're fine. <laughs> the transportation deal. What the hell? <laughs> like, what happened there? Um, I know you're very outspoken on how you feel about this. My, uh, the example I've been giving of how I feel about this is, you know, I went to Walnut Hills. We had those special extra buses. And one morning, <clears throat> excuse me, one morning I woke up too late. I missed the bus. So I had to take the 24 regular Metro down to, down to Walnut. But the closest it would get me is Victory and um, Victory and Madison, Victory and MLK there, that intersection. And if anyone, for those who know Cincinnati, that's a long, still a long walk to Walnut. Yeah. Um, you know, that's tame compared to the kids who have to take maybe two buses to get mm-hmm. to school. The t- kids who have to maybe transfer down a government square. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that this deal was executed just seemed kind of, first of all, um, my, my personal opinion, kind of inhumane to, mm-hmm. to many of the students, um, especially for students who live far away from their schools and just seemed very untimely too. Cause it happened like two weeks before the school year started. Um, mm-hmm. so what happened? <laughs> yeah, I agree that it's both of those things. Um, and so I'll start kind of with, the uh, uh, like a bigger, you know, sort of idea and then break it down uh, as quickly as possible and directly as possible. But, you know, I have a tremendous amount of love and respect for Metro. Our family uses it. They're good partners of the district. Um, and this is not a caveat by any stretch. I'm not into caveats, but I think it's important um, to note uh, that, you know, I know that they're having a struggle with the driver shortage and I respect all of this, but that is something that we could have been working on much longer than to your point a couple weeks before school started and so you know the breakdown in communication is kind of everybody's fault ours included um you know we had a a director of transportation that was sort of working outside the auspices of the board or administration communicating with metro um that it was fine to take away the extra routes which for the listeners viewers edification that's what the routes were called that our students use extra um, it's notable that the general public could still use those routes um, due to federal law. They, m- many people didn't know. They're not, people aren't looking to hop on a bus with 100 teenagers on it. I, I might be. But um, anyhow, so uh, the idea was since there was a driver shortage, we would scrap those routes because we need about 80-some drivers for them and, um, or 60-some, either way. Um, and the kids would ride the regular routes. And that they get passes up to 630 at night and on the weekends, which is a nice perk. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the trauma of, of taking that away moments before school starts for our families, this affects 6,000 students and families to take to take that away moments before school starts with no notice um, uh, is irresponsible and, and egregious, in my opinion. And um, again, while I can appreciate the struggles that they may be having at Metro, um, you know, it is unfortunate that our transportation folks and our finance committee, who they report to all year, uh, haven't been talking about this. We've been wanting to re-up our contract with Metro. Uh, it's been difficult to do because they're having their own struggles with their internal union, the ATU, Amalgamated Transit Union, uh, renegotiating contract with their drivers. So they have that going on, which makes it difficult to make contracts with outside entities like us. And so it's all kind of a mess, quite frankly. And, um, and, 
you know, I, as you've noted, uh, am a staunch advocate that we get our routes back. You know, until then, we have to make this work. I am totally committed to that. Um, uh, we need to, in my opinion, uh, come up with a set of data that we want to track, which we will talk about at tomorrow's board meeting. Uh, I would like to track that data so we can see if it's working. And, you know, it's working great. I had a reporter ask me from the news. Um, so if everything goes as uh, uh, well, was Metro right? And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's what it's about. I said, I hope everything goes perfectly, which it isn't, uh -huh. by the way. We're two days in and it's not. But um, I, it's not about that to me, about whether or not someone was right or wrong. It's about what's best for kids. And why is this so difficult to remember that that's why we're here? And this is not what's best for kids. And it is not what's best for their families, you know? And we have a responsibility first and foremost to them. And so um, it's been unfortunate. There was a big breakdown in communication. You know, we've taken action on our end, you know, without talking about personnel stuff. And we've, you know, we had a part to play, certainly. Uh, but I found out, my colleagues found out on the school board that this was happening when the public found out. That's uh -huh. not good. And something that's contract contractually binding like this agreement with Metro, that's board level stuff. You know, there, there's a, a million different things that happen every day that we don't know about, nor should we. Because our job sometimes is to complicate things that, you know, we need to get down in the, you know, down there, we need to ask the right questions and we need to bring everyone to the table and do the big things. Um, I don't need to know what goes on day by day. I have my own job. Uh, but uh, something that's contract level like this definitely should have risen to the top and it didn't. I we're at just about 30 minutes, which is where I promised you we would end. But I want to yeah, ask man. you one more question if you just want to sure. make it as quick as possible. Yeah. You're running for re-election. What is yes. your biggest mission on the school board? What is the thing, what's the one thing or a couple of things you want to accomplish on the school board? Yeah, man. I appreciate the question. Um, I'm going to give you two big ones. Um, thing number one is uh, continue the anti-racism work um, that I, uh, I've had opportunity to kind of get, really get going these past couple of years. You know, last year on June 10th, I remember that because it was my birthday. Um, <laughs> I assigned the creation of the state's first anti-racism policy in a school district. We have it. it. Took six months. It's wonderful. And in it, um, it prescribes that the district have a diversity, equity, and inclusion office. First time ever, we do. And hire a director of it. And for the first time ever in the history of CPS, we have a diversity, equity, and inclusion person who is an upper level administrator that reports to the assistant superintendent. I'm proud of that. However, um, being afforded the opportunity, um, doing my day job, working on largely black maternal health issues, I've gone through pretty intense implicit bias, anti-racism training the past three years. And as a 40 year old who considered himself fairly woke three years ago to find out that I wasn't, nor maybe could I ever be, um, has transformed the way that I do my work. And um, something I've noticed about the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion work is, um, A, we don't usually talk about it. B, if we talk about it, people consider that a huge win. C, sometimes we create a position and that's like the hugest win ever and then we stop. And what I realized and noticed in my career is when we create these new positions that we're all excited about, we're like, oh, good job, everybody. Look how woke we are. We did it, yay, everything, racism's gone. What I realized, what I've noticed is we don't fund these positions, we don't fund these offices, we don't fund these initiatives and nothing changes. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really bullish this budget cycle about staying in front of administrators like, are we empowering this person to do their job? Because guess what? We cannot hire Michelle, she's a great lady. We cannot hire her and say, end racism. The second, this is not how this is gonna work. She's gonna need a support and a team and we're gonna need new procedures and policies. And great, thankfully we are. We have new African-American history curriculum. 
we're going to be teaching kids beginning in kindergarten, the real history of this country. Very proud of that work, but it's going to take somebody uh, uh, pushing and reminding, because I'll tell you this bureaucracy doesn't change unless someone on the inside is being a pain in the ass. And maybe there's a nicer way to say that, but I, that's what it, you know, someone's got to be there poking. And so um, I really want to stay focused on that. And then the second thing that's, I think, uh, more like now timely, we, we, uh, we need to rebuild trust in the district. And uh, to do that, it's going to take transparency, um, increased transparency. And what I, when, I, when I talk about trust, I think our trust was damaged during COVID. And I think the same could be said about most school districts, certainly large urban school districts with a lot of different stakeholders. And, you know, I don't know if this was anyone's fault, unprecedented times, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, it was a hard year. It was a traumatic year. There was a lot of change. We're in school. We're out of school. We're in school. We're out of school. We have enough laptops. We don't have enough laptops. And people, people are like, what the hell is going on? And now the Metro thing happens. And it's just like, holy cow, after this past year and a half, and now this. And it doesn't matter. See, I don't get into the right, wrong game, as I just talked about a minute ago. I don't get into the blame game either. Like, what matters is what people think. And I think, you know, people are looking at us like, what's up? And, I, you know, I think they should. And, and it makes us better when they do that. We got a thousand people watching our meetings, man. People are more tuned into public school boards right now than city councils and mayoral races. Uh -huh. And they should be because it is the most important thing going on um, because it's about kids. And so uh, I think we have an opportunity with all the people watching to rebuild that trust. I think it's going to take increased transparency. I think it's going to take a lot of planning. I'm grateful to say I think we're doing both. Uh, we're going to have at least uh, two new board members um, come November. There's four seats up. I'm the only incumbent. Two of my colleagues are not running for re-election. So again, guaranteed two new board members. One new board member is a seat change. Two is astronomical. Mm -hmm. um, hell, I could lose and there'll be four new. I don't know, but I, I, I don't intend to. <laughs> so, um, but I think that rebuilding trust and that that focus on that anti-racism work and what it really, really means um, and listening and letting the students guide some of that work and not just talk about it, but not be afraid to listen to a teenager criticize us and tell us that we're doing A, B and C wrong and and sit with that, because I found it is very difficult for adults to sit with young people's criticism. Um, our first instinct, there's this thing in our adult brain, whether we want to admit it or not, that goes immediately to a yeah, but I call it the yeah, but we're like, oh yeah, but you're young or yeah, but you know, the reason things are this way and we need that, we need to kill that voice and mm -hmm. sit with some of these criticisms to make change. All right. Well, Mike, thank you. There are two things I wanted to get to that we didn't get to. So I'm just going to ask them and you can just say yes or no, just to make it real quick. Masks in schools, yes or no? Yes. yes. Um, critical race theory, yes or no? So that's a that's a that's a that's a good one. Um, so critical race theory um, uh, is it, so it's so funny because like the people that hate it have turned it into like its own thing, and it's not. There's not there's nothing that said there's not like a, a curriculum, a package curriculum. Here's critical race theory, and here's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a it's an idea. It's a theory of looking at history through different lenses, right, and sort of teaching people that history is synthetic and not synthetic, meaning history is not one thing. History is multiple different things all at once coexisting, like the Marvel multiverse. I'm also a comic book nerd. We can do a whole <laughs> nother thing on that. Another whole nother topic. Yeah. But, um, and you know, and, and again, back, my, my man, back to what we talked about at the very beginning about the, the teachers, 
you know, doing that, teaching people that history is syndectic, you got to really teach people to think that way. And and again, in the, in the more monolithic sort of monochromatic schools, it's like, here's the one version of history and that's it. So, um, I'm all about the theory of critical race theory. I love it. Um, but at CPS, again, proud to say we're going to have that African-American uh, right. history, which will teach a lot of that. We adopted a new English language arts curriculum that's teaching a lot through that lens of there wasn't just all these white authors. And then Harlem Renaissance is like a chapter in the book. But like, you know, the, there's this whole thread throughout. Right. Um, and same with social studies. Very proud of that whole new social studies curriculum that would take into account a lot of the tenets of critical race theory. So super proud. Well, I don't know if I don't know if you know the name Joe Yoshimura. He was a teacher at um, Walnut Hills that I had. He taught ethnic studies, and I actually had him on the podcast last season. And he's actually now a school board member as well for Northwest local schools. Oh, cool! And um, so we talked a little bit about that. And I've kind of said if we can just teach ethnic studies, and he only taught it for seniors because only he felt you know they were the most mature to handle those kind of things. Um, that's class is basically kind of like critical race theories. I, I call it critical race theory light. Um, so I think something like that would be a great initiation to a social studies curriculum district wide, not just at Walnut Hills. So anyway, uh, Mike, thank you so much. I love this conversation. I wish we could have gotten great. to more, but maybe I'll we'll have to have you have you on again sometime for a part Always. two. <laughs> Anytime, so, man. Mike, thank you so much. And we will be right back with the rest of the Clayton Castle podcast. Peace. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cincinnati Public Schools board member Mike Morosky. It was quite an honor to have him on the podcast as a proud Cincinnati Public Schools graduate. And so I really hope you enjoyed that interview. He hit on a lot of great points about the issues facing our children today, the transportation issue, whether kids should be wearing masks. He hit on critical race theory and really talked about his life and why he decided he wanted to run for the school board. And I want to thank him again for joining me. Well, that's it for this episode. You can catch us on the blog, claytoncastlepod.blogspot.com. And don't forget to find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And remember, you can also follow the podcast on Facebook at the Clayton Castle Podcast next week. I will be joined by my good friend, Doug Lillibridge, executive producer at Local 12. He has quite a story to tell from recovery to redemption, and I'm really excited to be able to tell that story. So be sure to come back next Friday and listen to that conversation. You will not want to miss it. Thanks again, and have a great week, and God bless.